I invite you to open your Bible or one of the pew Bibles to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. We continue the sermon series, this being the, the 15th sermon in the series, and as you see, the third sermon on this particular passage of Scripture from chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is His holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. It is preserved for us in Holy Scripture that we might know His truth and live in response to His grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your love and Your grace and Your mercy and Your power. We are thankful that in your love for us, you have breathed out your word as a testimony to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit upon us to open our minds spiritually, to open our hearts with receptivity to your word, and to grant to us that spiritual wisdom and insight so that by true faith in Christ, we may not only hear and receive, but respond to your word, to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Let us hear the word of God, a letter to the Romans, beginning at verse 20, chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And now unto him who loves us who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. I've never done this. I'm 99.99% sure that I have never preached three consecutive sermons from the same passage of scripture you may be wondering whether we're ever going to move on and get through the letter to the Romans but you know the fact of the matter is is that it really would be quite easy and beneficial to preach three sermons from every passage of scripture although I've never been compelled to do so until now so why three sermons on this passage Romans 3 21 through 26 well the First of all, this passage lays the foundation for everything else that follows 
in the letter to the Romans. Everything else um, to come is really uh, an extrapolation, an elaboration, an application of uh, this biblical truth of justification by grace as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, even more so, this passage lays not only the foundation for our understanding of the whole letter to the Romans, more importantly, it lays the foundation for our lives. It answers the question, how can a righteous God justify me, a sinner? Or to ask the same question from the opposite direction. How can I, a sinful man, stand before a holy God? What is the spiritual bedrock for your life? If you want your life to be built on the firm foundation of the solid rock and not on shifting, seeking sand, then Romans 3, 21 through 26, is worthy of three consecutive Sermons. Now, in the first sermon on this passage, we emphasize the importance of that little word, everybody, but, at verse 21, which signals the shift from the bad news to the good news. The bad news is that common denominator of all humanity. We all are created by God, we all are accountable to God, and we all are guilty without excuse before God and therefore subject to his just condemnation. That applies to us all. 3.23, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, but there is good news. There is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, God himself has provided a righteousness, a justification that does not depend upon our keeping of God's law, but depends wholly upon faith in Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled God's law for us. The good news is that sinners who believe in Christ are, as the scripture says, justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption, the freedom-purchasing payment that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. Then in the second sermon, we dug down a little deeper emphasizing that God's gift of justification by His grace was a costly gift, a gift freely given to us at the cost of Christ's blood. Jesus Himself was the wrath-absorbing substitutionary sacrifice which satisfied the justice of God against our sins. Therefore, God's grace is not a cheap grace, but a costly grace. The sacrificial death of Jesus demonstrated God's righteousness, as the scripture says. His moral integrity, the death of Jesus on the cross displayed God's wrath against sin and showed, therefore, how God could be both just, executing a righteous judgment against sin, 
upholding his law, maintaining his moral integrity, his righteousness, and yet at the same time also, as the scripture says, be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God can be and is the just justifier of believers in Christ. Because the death of Christ satisfied the justice of God against sins. And all those who have faith in Christ have their sins covered by His blood and the wrath of God against them has been suffered by Jesus in their place. For those who are justified by His grace as a gift through faith in Jesus, there is no more debt to be paid. There is no more penalty to be exacted. There is no more punishment to be suffered. God's justice has been satisfied on the cross And so God's mercy justly flows from the cross. This is the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, said that the church stands or falls by the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. This this biblical doctrine, right where we are, right now in Romans 3, 21 to 26, was at the center of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, the 500th anniversary of which we mark this year. But it's also the doctrine upon which you and I stand or fall before God's judgment. Martin Luther, a monk, was a tormented soul because he understood very well that he was a sinful man and that God was a righteous judge. As a monk in a monastery, Luther performed all of his religious obligations, his religious works and duties, obsessively, going far beyond the requirements of his monastic order in order to try to gain some assurance of his salvation and peace with God. Luther wrote, I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. But Luther found no peace for his soul until he read the letter to the Romans and rediscovered the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ by whom and through whom God justifies sinners by his grace as a gift through the propitiation of Jesus Christ By his blood received through faith. So what about you now? If someone were to ask you, you know, an interview on the street, about your assurance of peace with God, what would you say? Here's the key. About whom would you speak? This is what I mean. 
someone were to ask you about your assurance of peace with God, your standing with God, would you begin by speaking about yourself? About how you try to live a good life, try to be a good parent and a good spouse, try to be loving toward others, try to maintain an upright standard of morality, and the fact that you're not guilty of any gross sins, that you're a member of your church and you give what you can of your time and money and that you, you believe in God and you do pray. Well, let's be clear. All of those are good and fine things. But the problem is they're all about you. Here's the point. If someone were to ask you about your standing with God, would you talk about yourself or would you begin and end by talking about God and what he has done to secure your salvation by his grace through Jesus Christ? It's all about him. This was the key that opened heaven's gates for Martin Luther. Stop looking at yourself and start looking to Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for your salvation. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. But now in this third sermon, what I want you to see is that This great doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone is not merely an abstract theological concept conceived by the Apostle Paul. This passage, Romans 3, 21 through 26, this doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ flows out of Jesus' own life and ministry. Look, we don't believe in a doctrine. We believe in Jesus Christ. Say amen. Amen. Doctrine helps us understand. But we're not saved by believing in a doctrine. We're saved by believing in Jesus Christ to whom this doctrine points. Let's look first at a scene early on in Jesus' ministry. Recorded in Mark 2, the healing of a paralytic. The man was completely paralyzed. He could do nothing for himself. He did not have the power to get himself to Jesus. He was powerless, helpless. But his friends brought him. And because the crowd had gathered around Jesus so much, 
that there's no way to get inside the house. They couldn't get through the door, so his friends climbed up on the roof, ripped the roof off, and lowered the paralytic down on his pallet into the room where Jesus was. And, Mark tells us, when Jesus saw their faith, their faith in him, the faith of the man's friends who had gone to such lengths to bring the paralytic to Jesus, and the faith of the paralytic himself which was evident in the fact that he let himself be publicly humiliated by such a public display of his miserable condition. When Jesus saw their faith in him, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now I bet that that's not what they expected or even wanted Jesus to say. They had brought the man to Jesus to be healed of his paralysis, but Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. What a strange thing to say. Not only strange, but blasphemous. That's what the scribes, the teachers of the law who were there, thought to themselves when they heard it. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Those were the very charges brought against Jesus during his trial before the high priest on the night on which he was arrested the night before his crucifixion. Blasphemy, making himself equal with God. This event early on in the ministry of Jesus, you see, makes the connection between Jesus' promise of the forgiveness of sins, justification, And Jesus' death. When Jesus said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He knew exactly what he was saying. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was signing his own death warrant. For the sake of that helpless, powerless paralytic. Because Jesus knew that he was going to die for the forgiveness of those sins. And then to prove that he had the authority to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, Jesus said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the powerless paralytic arose as if rising from the dead and stood justified in the presence of the incarnate God and walked home in newness of life. Now you see, declaration of sins which led ultimately to the death of Jesus, giving life, new life to the powerless paralytic. It's just as Isaiah prophesied 700 years before. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we, all of us, we powerless paralytics are healed. Another scene from the life of Jesus, one which is often referred to in order uh, supposedly to show uh, Jesus' non-judgmental attitude toward sin, as though Jesus were soft on sin. Quite the opposite. Remember the woman caught in adultery? Caught in the very act? Now, the immediate backdrop of 
this story is that the Pharisees and the chief priests were looking for a way to arrest Jesus in order ultimately to do away with him. To understand what's really going on in this familiar story, you've got to see the shadow of the cross hanging over it. The scribes and Pharisees brought the woman, threw her down outside the temple where Jesus was teaching the crowd. They said to him, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? John tells us that they said this, quote, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. You see, it wasn't about the woman. It was about Jesus. He's the one they wanted dead. John tells us that that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We don't know what he wrote. But maybe he wrote the seventh commandment with his finger, as he had done on Mount Sinai. You shall not commit adultery. Or maybe he wrote from Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then Jesus stood up and said, okay, go ahead. You see, it's really important to understand That Jesus didn't enter into some kind of plea bargain for this woman. He didn't defend her. He didn't make excuses for her. He didn't try to minimize the sinfulness of her adultery. And he certainly did not undermine the law of God. But with the wisdom of God and the justice of God, Jesus simply said, okay, go ahead. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, they went away. When they were gone, Jesus said to her, Woman, has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus' use of the word condemn is judicial language, courtroom language, trial language. This was a trial held in public. The opposite of a judgment to condemn is a judgment to justify. This woman was not condemned. She She was justified and set free. But wait a minute, she was guilty, wasn't she? Oh yes, she was guilty. But you remember what Jesus said? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Well, who was that? Who was the one among them who was without sin? Who was the one among them who could have justly condemned her? Jesus. But he said, neither 
do I condemn you? In other words, I justify you, set you free. Now go and sin no more. But, 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 but in saying that, did Jesus undermine the law of God and contravene the demands of God's justice? No. Jesus, the righteous one, without sin, the just judge, could say justly, neither do I condemn you. Because he knew that he himself would be condemned for her in her place. God's justice against her sin would be and was in fact satisfied by the death of Jesus for her. God's justice has been satisfied on the cross and so God's mercy justly flows from the cross. And so God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I wonder, do you think perhaps that the Apostle Paul might possibly have had this scene in mind when he wrote at Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has already been condemned in the place of those who trust in him. Well, this is seen perhaps most clearly in the turn of events that took place in Jesus' trial before Pilate. Remember, Pilate appealed to an annual custom by which he would release a Jewish prisoner during the week of Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He asked the crowd. They cried out again, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber, an insurrectionist, a revolutionary, a murderer. But at this moment, we see the great exchange. Barabbas, the guilty, walks free. Jesus, the righteous, is condemned. Barabbas and Jesus exchanged places. You remember that Jesus was crucified between two criminals. The third cross was for Barabbas. He was the ringleader. But in Pilate's mind, for the sake of the crowd, it was an even exchange. Crucified Jesus instead of Barabbas. There it is. The death of the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. Vividly illustrated in the crucifixion of Jesus and the release of Barabbas. Now this is not to imply that Barabbas was thereby eternally saved by Jesus. No, there's no evidence in the New Testament that a criminal named Barabbas later heard the gospel, repented of his sin, and placed his faith in Christ. We don't know, but that's not the point here. The point here is that I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. And although you and I are guilty as charged and subject to the eternal condemnation, not of a human unjust judge, but of the holy, righteous judge, our creator God, nevertheless, 
There is a Savior who has exchanged places with us and offered himself up unto death as our substitute that by his death, which satisfies divine justice and averts divine wrath, we might be forgiven of all our sins and stand justified in the presence of the Holy One. This is what it means to be justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. What does this mean to you? If indeed you are trusting in Christ alone. Well, listen again to the reformer Martin Luther. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. But what of it? What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where He is, there I shall be also. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom alone we trust. And we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would continually work your word in our hearts and renew our minds, that we might live more faithfully and more fully as those who have been justified by your grace as a gift through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith. Again, making use of the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number 60. Christian, how are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. In spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them, and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, God grants to me the benefits of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, imputing to me His righteousness and holiness as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, as if I myself had fulfilled all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. If only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. Amen.